When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before beginning today's episode, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's bought the Mexican Earthquake charity episode so far. It's available to download right now from the Latin American History Podcast Patreon page. I will attach a link to it in the description. If you haven't, I would like to ask you to consider purchasing. All the money will go to the Mexican Red Cross as they coordinate their relief efforts for the earthquake which happened around Mexico City. In return, you'll get an interesting story of war, intrigue and city building during the Maya era. Anyway, on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 16, Brazil and the Southern Cone. In this episode, we'll discuss the pre-Columbian history of the last two areas left in Latin America, Brazil, that is, south of the Amazon, and the Southern Cone, what is today's Uruguay, Argentina, and Chile. This will also cover what is today Paraguay as this area in the pre-Columbian times was culturally very similar to Brazil. Now these areas, they're not like the Andes or Mexico, that is, home to complex civilizations and major cities. Instead, their populations generally lived either hunter-gatherer lifestyles, or perhaps they practiced small-scale agriculture. Because of this, and despite the massive geographical area being covered, There's not as much to talk about here as there was in the Andes. I will use the first half of this episode to discuss who these people were, how they lived, and some of their interesting features. And then, as this is the last episode of the pre-Columbian stage of this podcast, I will do a brief recap of the main points of pre-Columbian history. We will go over what we've learnt, and discuss the main themes that have emerged. This will also hopefully serve as a bit of a reminder, as those first episodes on ancient Mexico were quite a long time ago now. Okay, so let's begin. What is today the nation of Brazil encompasses a truly vast area and a variety of different ecosystems. Because of this, it was home to a large number of people who belonged to many different cultures and ethnic groups. 
We can't say for sure how many people populated the area before European contact, but the Brazilian agency which deals with indigenous people estimates that there may have been between 4 and 6 million people living there. Unlike the people of the Andean region, and as it is becoming apparent, the Amazon, the bulk of what is now Brazil was not home to advanced civilizations. There were a couple of large ethno-linguistic families, of which most of the people inhabiting Brazil belonged. One of these was the Tupi. It's thought that they initially inhabited the Amazon, but they moved down into the rest of Brazil around 3,000 years ago. They spread out along the coast, and when the Portuguese arrived, the whole of the coastline was inhabited by the various Tupi peoples. While they do not seem to have built large cities, they did practice agriculture, and so did not live a hunter-gatherer existence. That said, there is evidence of regular migration, although the reasons for this are not clear. It could have been a way to grow different crops as the seasons changed, or it could have been a response to war. Some of their myths talk about a constant search for land without evil, and so it's been suggested that this search could in some way be responsible for their movement. They did live at least semi-settled lives, however, and their villages would be home to up to a thousand people. Their houses were huge. They could be up to 500 feet long and house 100 people. The space inside was then split into much smaller areas belonging to extended family groups. The land surrounding their villages was farmed, and they would also venture out into the forests to hunt. The Tupi people were known for having a warlike nature, and if early Portuguese accounts are to be believed, they were constantly harassing and raiding each other. They also practiced cannibalism, and prisoners of war were ritually consumed in order to placate the spirits. This wasn't something just reserved for their enemies, however, and they are said to have sometimes eaten the remains of dead relatives as a way of showing respect. Inland, in the south of the country, and in neighbouring Paraguay, were the Guarani. We know from linguistic work that these people were distantly related to the Tupi, although they had been separated long enough to form a different ethnic group. They inhabited an area which stretched into the plains of Bolivia, parts of northern Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. Paraguay was the central part of their homelands, and even today, Guarani is, along with Spanish, an official language of the country. The currency there is also named after them. They lived in small tribal groupings, in a similar way to the Tupi. Now there isn't too much more to say about the Guarani. Not much has been written about them, and at this point, we have run through so many different groups that I'm sure it's starting to get confusing, and you probably don't need to hear all the details about what they believed and how they lived. I will say, however, that you should remember their name. Although they did not build an advanced civilization, they will have a role to play during the colonial period, although not a happy one. Okay, so moving southwards into the southern cone. Like Brazil, the land which is today Uruguay, Argentina and Chile was not home to large cities and states. Instead, its inhabitants were largely hunter-gatherers. In the north, the area closest to the Andean civilizations, some of the local people adopted some traits of the Inca civilization, 
They created things such as pottery. The Diaguitas were one such people, and they partially came under Inca rule. All of the Diaguita accepted the cultural influence of the Inca, if not their political power. One of their tribes was known as the Kilmi, and they remained independent of the Inca. They did, however, build a city also named Quilmes, and today it is the grandest archaeological site in Argentina. Up to 5,000 people may have lived there at its height, and it's home to many buildings, canals and two cemeteries. The city sits in a picturesque spot, sprawled across the lower slopes of a mountain and down onto the valley floor below. Another northern Argentinian people were the Comechingon, who lived a settled lifestyle and lived in stone houses. The centre of the country is geographically made up of huge plains known as the Pampas. The largest group here were the Com, who lived in tribes consisting of several family groups. They lived a semi-nomadic life, with the men hunting and the women foraging and growing crops and small plots of land. Their religion was shamanistic, with nature and animals being the primary objects of worship. The shamans would use knowledge of local plants for healing purposes, and after the tribal chief, they were the most respected members of Com society. South of the Pampas lies Patagonia. This area was inhabited by an ethno-linguistic group known as the Chon family. There are several different Chon ethnic groups, However, they all had a shared origin. It's also thought that the native people of Uruguay were a Chon people. Uruguay seems to have been particularly sparsely inhabited, and we only know of one group there, the Charua. We know very little about them, however. It is theorised by some that the Chon people share a history with a language group known as the Chimane, who inhabit parts of lowland Bolivia. This theory is not universally accepted, however. As you can probably tell, we are really working in the dark with the people of the Southern Cone. There is very little solid knowledge about any of them, and I'm only really able to give you a very vague outline. The largest Chon group were the Tehuelche, who lived in the Argentinian part of Patagonia. These people were said to be very tall, and when the explorer, Magellan, passed through the area, he saw huge footprints and named the area Patagonia. His word has a disputed origin, but it's thought to relate to his belief that the local people were giants. It turns out that the footprints were actually made by the boots which these people wore, and so the prints were larger than the actual feet of the locals. Like all Patagonian people, they were nomadic, and they lived a very basic lifestyle. They would hunt their food, and also left behind cave paintings depicting animals and handprints. Other Chon groups in southern Patagonia include the Selknam and the Huash. These people lived in a similar manner. Again, we know very little about their beliefs and their ways of life, but we do know a little about the elaborate ceremonies they would conduct to mark the transition of boys into adulthood. Boys would be taken into a hut and they would be attacked by spirits. These were represented by adults in costume. As children, they would have been warned of these spirits and the dangers they posed. 
However, during the ceremony, the boys would eventually unmask them to discover they were nothing more than humans. There would then be a series of tests of courage. In all, these initiation ceremonies could last up to a year. At the very bottom of the continent lived another Chon group, known as the Yagan. These were the most southernmost people in the world. In one place, they created a circle of stone mounds within which they built a village. They left us little other evidence of their culture, however. Interestingly, the Yagan do not seem to have worn clothes. Instead, they would brave the fierce cold of the region completely naked. Considering that it rarely gets above 10 degrees centigrade down there, that is quite impressive. They would combat the cold by rubbing animal grease over their bodies and by resting in a squatting position which helped them retain body heat. They also built fires wherever they went and they would sit close to them for warmth. When explorers first reached the area, one of the things they noticed were the hundreds of fires dotting the landscape, hence the name they gave it, Tierra del Fuego, which translates as Land of Fire. This area is made up of hundreds of islands, with fjords running between them. The Yagan would build rudimentary boats to navigate this landscape, and somehow they even managed to light controlled fires on these boats. There is one more group which inhabited Patagonia, the Mapuche. The Mapuche actually came from the region of Araucania, north of Patagonia. They had lived in that area from around 500 BC, and they had a different origin to the Chon peoples. There are a number of theories as to how the Mapuche relate to other peoples, with some linking them to groups as distant as the Maya, or even the Polynesian people. Of course, these links have not been widely accepted. Like the neighbouring Chon peoples, they lived a simple lifestyle, until the 1400s, when the Inca started making incursions into their territory. After some fighting, they were pushed south into Patagonia. Despite losing their homeland to the Inca, in return they gained knowledge, and they were inspired by the central government and organised state which the Inca had created. In their new territory, they imitated the societal models, and built settled villages and small states, they started producing complex textiles and carved wooden burial statues up to four metres high. They also began making intricate silver jewellery. Thanks to these developments, they found themselves able to dominate the surrounding peoples and built what was by far the strongest culture in the area. This process is known as the Araucasation of Patagonia and many surrounding people started using the Mapuche language. Even today, the Mapuche have managed to retain a strong sense of identity, thanks to their innovations, while the Chon people have all but disappeared. So that's it. We have now covered the whole of Latin America, and I've given a brief outline of who was living where and how they lived. There is, of course, so much more that could be said about all of these peoples. But for now, I hope I've given a brief introduction to them all.
and you have a better understanding of what the region was like. So what are the major themes then of pre-Columbian Latin America? Well, let's start with the most obvious points. The two main centres of civilization were undoubtedly Mesoamerica, today's Mexico and Guatemala, and the Andes of Peru, Bolivia and Ecuador. Civilization in the forms of cities, monumental architecture, state institutions and large-scale food production started early in these places, and it kept going right up to the arrival of the Spanish. These places should be put in the same bracket as Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley and ancient China, in terms of their importance to early human history. They were home to many civilizations. There was so much more going on there than just the Aztec, the Inca and the Maya. Other interesting civilizations also developed in Colombia and Central America. These people left behind impressive architectural evidence of their existence. Elsewhere, smaller-scale agricultural cultures and hunter-gatherers occupied most of the land. These people had extremely varied political systems, as well as religious and cultural traditions. There are some fascinating examples that are quite alien to our way of seeing the world. Often these grew out of the geographical environment in which the people lived. Amazonian culture, for example, was very different to that of the tribes of Mexico's northern desert. Local plants also influenced religious traditions, with shamanism being popular in the ayahuasca regions of the Amazon, the coca-producing regions of the Andes, and the places where tobacco was grown in the Caribbean. There are also interesting differences between the history and cultures of the Old World and those of the New World of the Americas. Europe, Asia and Africa are geographically connected. Even though there are vast differences, and these meant the few travelled very far, cultural exchange did exist across these continents, and ideas travelled across them. The Western Hemisphere, however, being completely cut off, developed separately, and so developed its own unique features. The Incan Kipu is a perfect example of this. The fact that they recorded their thoughts and speech in a way that was completely different to written language is extremely interesting, and to my knowledge unique, although I may be proved wrong on this. If you know of any other examples, feel free to let me know. The fact that the wheel wasn't used in the Americas, yet they managed to build such massive buildings as well as creating huge empires with large trading networks is also a fascinating feature. The traditional academic and most ordinary people's conception of history is that civilizations develop along a set path and they become more complex as time goes on. When certain things are discovered or invented, this leads to the next stage of civilization. This concept will instantly be familiar to anyone who's played the Civilization series of computer games, or even the old Age of Empires games. Agriculture is normally the first step, as it allows people to settle in one place and produce a food surplus. This can then be used to allow people to devote their time to non-food-related activities. This would then be followed by a rudimentary political system, normally with some sort of king, and this was the beginning of the state. According to this model of history, 
Hunter-gatherer people are still in the earliest stage of human development, something which Westerners moved out of a long time ago. Of course, writing and the wheel are normally considered to be two of the earliest discoveries that are needed for further growth. In most places, Mesopotamia, China, India and Greece, the discovery of these things early allowed societies to develop faster than their neighbours. The fact that Mesoamericans did not have the wheel, well, in fact they did have the wheel, but they only used it on children's toys, which is intriguing, and that the Andean people lacked both the wheel and writing, is fascinating, because they still managed to build complex and vast states which could rival those of the old world. They challenged this idea that civilizations develop along a linear path, and that this path must be followed by all. Instead, they demonstrate that societies respond to the situations that their geography and history present them with, and different cultures find different solutions. Sometimes that solution is to build a massive team of people to carry goods across your growing empire, as the Aztecs did. But sometimes, such as for those Amazonian tribes who lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and did not build cities, the best solution is to continue living the way you always have, rather than trying to fight the jungle. The linear model of human development is called social evolutionism, or sometimes social Darwinism. It's been used to justify all sorts of things, including slavery and colonialism. The idea being that the stronger, more developed culture was destined to dominate the weaker ones. In fact, They were doing these weaker, less developed ones a favour by bringing them civilization. This is of course a massive subject area, and it still to a certain extent influences some political views today. I don't want to get off topic and go down that rabbit hole here. There is a massive debate to be had, and of course these views have largely fallen out of favour. But as I have just shown, the native people of the Americas do provide some interesting points on the subject. A separate but related point is that the indigenous people of the Americas prove that there are many different ways of organising societies. Growing up in a culture means taking on all sorts of implicit and subconscious ideas and assumptions about human nature and society as a whole. There are many things we take for granted as being just how things are or how human nature makes us live. We tend to think of hierarchical societies as natural, for example. Even systems such as communism, a supposed great levelling political system, or they tend to end up with an elite group ruling over the rest. The old, everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others. Groups such as the Chachapoya, though, show that there are examples of societies that do not follow this pattern, and that hierarchy is not necessarily the natural order of things. Just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that this means we should attempt to demolish our own systems and create some kind of anarchist paradise, only that examples such as this provide some interesting food for thought about human nature. Another example of this can be found in the legal systems of Mesoamerica, While punishments were often severe, death was handed out a little too easily for my liking, 
The fact that there was no form of prison in these societies is interesting. I expect that the idea that an advanced society can exist without prisons would seem revolutionary to many people raised in the West, as they are so integral to our legal systems. Again, I'm not suggesting that we do away with prisons and adopt the Aztec system of punishment by slavery, but it is by examining different ways of doing things that new ideas can be created, and our own methods can be seen in a different light. Whether those new ideas turn out to be useful or not is another question, but it is never a bad thing to think about new ideas, or at least consider if we can learn anything from someone else's. Conversely, we've also discovered some striking similarities between American peoples and Old World ones, despite the fact that they developed completely separately. These can perhaps tell us something as well. There are similarities in the forms that deities and myths take in various places. I can't help but see parallels between the Moiska pantheon and the Greek one. Take Chibchakum, the god who held the world on his shoulders, just like Atlas did in Greek mythology. Now I've pointed out some of the other similarities between old and new world cultures in previous episodes, but a couple are worth mentioning again. If social elites are not a completely universal thing, the way in which people use physical markers to show their status where they do exist does seem to be a pretty universal phenomenon. The Maya nobility wearing funny feathers and making their babies cone-headed and cross-eyed is a hilarious example. Mind you, I'm sure some of the things that our rich elites do would seem funny to them. On the other hand, getting people to do your housework, patronising special social places inaccessible to others, and jostling fiercely for social position are, in my guess, behaviours that they would probably recognise quite easily. Just as the differences which the American cultures developed compared to those of the old world can tell us something about what is and what isn't inherently human, so too can the similarities. What is it about humans that makes them feel the need to mark social hierarchies and to come up with similar methods for doing so? And what is it about the human condition that makes us feel the need to create similar myths and deities? What are we trying to express with these stories? And why did a group of people in Colombia feel the need to express the same thing in similar ways as another group in Greece? This is a topic which has been debated by anthropologists, sociologists and historians for centuries. I unfortunately don't have the answer. Although, as I have argued, societies can develop in very different ways, they can also develop in very similar ones. The Inca economic and social model is remarkably similar to the ideas of Karl Marx in some ways, with its state-controlled industries and subsidised food for those in need. Of course, its propaganda was not built on empowering the workers, and said it was the glory of the emperor, so perhaps it was more like national socialism than the left-wing type. It is remarkable, though, how similar solutions are found to similar problems in very different places. To move things into less theoretical territory, Another theme that has come out of pre-Columbian history is movement. 
We are slowly realizing that even in the very beginning, people were a lot more capable of long-distance movement than we give them credit for. The evidence coming out of western Mexico suggests that the Capacha people may have interacted and shared cultural features with the people of Ecuador. This interaction goes back all the way to before the year 1000 BC. Even earlier, people somehow found a way down through Alaska, either across vast ice sheets or by sea, things that were previously thought to have been impossible for the people of the time. The Arawak people are another example. They spread out across Latin America and the Caribbean, surely making them one of the most geographically dispersed language families in the world. Acknowledging that people could and did travel great distances has interesting implications for ancient history in particular, especially when developing theories about how different people first moved to the places they settled, and how these people interacted and influenced each other. A final, more practical conclusion I have drawn from researching these episodes is that, simply, there is an enormous amount of work still to be done. I have lost count of the number of times I've said some variation of the phrase we just don't know enough about one people or another. There are whole swathes of groups. This episode is a perfect example about whom we know next to nothing. Even our knowledge of the better understood regions like Mesoamerica is patchy in places. I hope that this changes in the future. So, that's all I'm going to say about the pre-Columbian Americas. By now you should have a fairly good understanding of the different people and the geography of the region. As we move on to the colonial phase of the podcast, this will help you to understand how the era played out. This was the base on top of which colonial Iberian society was built. In some places, the native people and their cultures were all but wiped out, but in most, it either continued under the rule of the Europeans, or it was blended into a new mestizo culture which drew from both peoples. To try to understand the later history, or the contemporary reality of the region, without at least a basic knowledge of the indigenous peoples, would be like trying to build a chair with a leg missing. It just doesn't work. This isn't, therefore, the end of our dealings with the indigenous people. We will keep coming back to them, right up to the last episodes, which deal with the present day. We will also return to them fairly soon, as we deal with the conquest. Next episode, we will move on to the Iberians. Before telling the story of the conquest and the first explorations, I think I need to give a short introduction to Spain and Portugal. This will be just a brief overview, charting their history up until the 1400s and explaining what caused them to set off on their great adventures. Until then, thanks for listening.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.